you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A and now, Move the Sticks with Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. No, no, no. My man DJ is out for this one. So it's Bucky Brooks rolling solo on the Move the Sticks podcast. And I'm really excited because this is a loaded podcast. We have an opportunity to talk to some of my favorite guys. We're going to talk to three-time Super Bowl winning GM Charlie Casserly, well, he won three Super Bowls with the Washington Redskins, one as a GM, two as an assistant GM. We're going to talk to him about everything as it relates to the hiring process, how you hire a general manager, how do you hire a head coach, what we on the outside should be thinking about when we hear about these hot candidates going into the hiring cycle. And then we're going to talk to Charles Davis. My man CD is going to help us preview the NFC wildcard weekend. We're going to talk about the matchups, talk about who he likes, what he's seen, and what we should be looking for this Sunday when the NFC games take place. And then finally, we're just going to react to the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. We had an opportunity to see two of the quarterbacks that we will talk about in the 2020 draft class. Justin Herbert, Jake Fromm saw some of their teammates also stand up and show up. So I'm looking forward to sharing all of those things. It should be a very, very exciting podcast. Let's start this thing by talking to Charlie Cassidy. Anytime you have an opportunity to talk to a person who has been involved with three Super Bowl winners, who has picked a couple of great head coaches, who has a tremendous amount of experience in the league and continues to be one of the guys that people go to uh, to figure out what's going on, you have to take advantage of that opportunity. Here's our conversation. Really excited uh, to bring on one of my friends, one of my colleagues, one of my mentors, uh, Charlie Cassidy, a guy who's been a three-time Super Bowl <laughs> winner, a guy who's been a general manager of a couple different franchises. And really, Charlie, I'm excited to have you on because we're at the point now where we're in the hiring cycle. And it's not just head coaches, but also general managers. So I want to start in talking about the team building the general manager. When you think about hiring a general manager, what are the qualities that ownership or decision makers should look for in a quality GM candidate? You know, Bucky, I, I divide it into two categories. One is football. And, and let's keep it simple here. 
can you tell me what's going on on the field? Is it right or wrong? Because that's what the owner is going to ask. Okay, that's as simple. Now, most people, as a general manager uh, for a, with a football background, come from a background like you and I had in scouting, in personnel, evaluating players. There are other general managers that have been successful. Ernie, of course, he's won a Super Bowl. Brandon Bean has done well up in uh, Buffalo. You know, they didn't come from the same background. Uh, but the bottom line is you've got to uh, uh, be able to say X and O-wise, is it right? Are the players being used right? Uh, can we pick the right players? So if you're not doing that, you better have somebody that can, that you can rely upon. Now, over and above that, too, you've got, you've got to be a leader. You've got to be a leader of men. And, and I think that communication may be the biggest key there. There's many different personalities, as we know. Uh, but can you communicate your message, but can you listen? Communication is listening. It's problem solving, okay, uh, as, as, as you pointed out off the air. So that's the biggest thing as a guy, as a general manager, has to be able to listen, got to be able to communicate his message at all levels. You're talking to an owner, and there's many different types of owners. There's Mara and Rooney who've been in it their whole life, and there's owners who have just got into it from the business world. So there's a different level of communication involved there. So to me, those are the key things. You have to have an understanding of what's going on in the field. Somehow you have to have learned that or have the right guy, but you have to communicate, you have to be a leader, you have to listen, and you have to be able to solve problems immediately. You can't let them sit on your desk. You know, Charlie, so in, in listening to you, like it, it sounds like the general manager that you are talking about is the guy who is actually the visionary, the one who sees the big picture of here's how the team should be constructed. Here's how the team should um, play in a sense. Um, this is what the brand that we're putting out should look like on the field. How do you take a general manager and how does the general manager also marry that up with the head coach that either works with him or works under him or however you call that partnership? Yeah, and it is a partnership, okay? And it can be divided into two ways. Uh, the head, for example, when John Schneider went to Seattle, Pete Carroll was the head coach. He knew Pete Carroll was going to be in charge, but hey, I can be a general manager. I have a chance to, to help build a team. And the two of them married the relationship together. So we don't know who's in charge, but they both work together. Mike Holmgren, Ron Wolf. Ron said, Hey, it isn't who's in charge. You have to work together. All right, so, so we have that concept. Who's ever in charge, it doesn't make any difference. Bill Parcells was running the Jets. Dick Haley was the as personnel guy. Dick Haley helped build the four Super Bowl winners in Pittsburgh. The two of them worked together. Parcells could not be successful without Dick Haley because he's too busy coaching the team. All right, now, if, if you hire the general manager first, then he will have a vision, along with the owner, of what they're looking for. So... In that situation, now you're going to have to hire a head coach. You know, we'll, get, we'll come back into that. If you're going to walk into a situation like John Snyder, you have to put your ego aside. We're here to win. We're going to work together. Coach, tell me what you want. Tell me how we want to build this thing. Okay? What do we need to do? Either way, who's ever first, I was a general manager. In Washington, following Bobby Bethard, the contract that I inherited, which is the one Bobby Bethard had, the head coach had final say on the roster. The general manager had final say on the uh, draft. And then free agency came and on free agency. However, it's a cooperative type thing. You're not going to go sign a player or draft a player, especially high, that the head coach or staff doesn't want. So you have to work it. Both can't agree. You've got to go to somebody else. So it's working together even though you might have the final say. Again, if the head coach is in charge, Bucky, he's too busy coaching. He, need, he has to rely upon a guy to organize the scouting staff, to go out there, line up the players, so that when he comes into it with his coaches, everything's organized to a point, then the coaches now get their input. So in it, 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 the end of the day, both people have to work together. You know, Charlie, it, it, like just in listening to you, it, it sounds like um, on the outside, uh, the football world doesn't understand how the relationship really works because it seems like the general manager and the head coach should be tied at the hip going all the way through when you're evaluating the team and the performance and everything it's hard to kind of subtract one from the other because what you're talking about is a partnership both ways it's a partnership with the general manager if he's in charge he's hiring a head coach and they're having a shared vision if the uh, head coach has the authority he brings in the gm 
Well, the GM is kind of following the wishes of the head coach in terms of here's my vision of the team and the like. So I really don't understand when I see the separation between, oh, we're going to fire the head coach, we're going to keep the GM, and he's going to get another crack or two at the apple. Can you kind of continue to talk about that relationship and how you can tell what falls on the GM and what really falls on the head coach? Well, let's try to take the first part of it there. Uh, you know, why if we're married at the hip is there a divorce? Okay, and only one is there. Well, the, the head coach is in charge of motivation, discipline, right? And also the, uh, the use of the players and the development of the players. So you can agree on, on here, here's the, the players that we're going to get. But then you can see a situation like in Cleveland this year where there's a lack of discipline and organization. Well, that falls directly on the coach, not the general manager. All right, we're married at the hip, but you're not doing your job, mm-hmm. okay, once we separate there. So that's one way it can happen there, uh, if the head coach loses a team or doesn't develop the team. Then from the general manager's point of view, Andy Reid, John Dorsey in Kansas City. Andy Reid was in charge. He's involved in hiring John Dorsey. It doesn't work out. The communication didn't seem to work there is what I was told. Okay, John did a good job on his end with the players, but they weren't always communicating. Hey, wait a minute, we got to communicate better. Owner decides, well, I'm head coach is going to be here. We'll appoint another general manager and work on. So th- what happens is there is a separation. And even though they agree on the thing at the end, you could have a lot of disagreements. And, and Jack Kent Cook, who I always worked for, who I worked for a long time, always would defer to the head coach if there was a disagreement. Why? Because I'm holding him responsible for winning and that's Cook calling here to tell me I know what I'm talking about here. Anyway, <laughs> so it's a long-distance call at this point. So anyway, he, uh, so his point there is that uh, I'm going to hold the coach responsible, but I understand you're against this player. You don't think it's right for us. So that's where separation can happen. No, that, that, that's really, that's, that's really uh, interesting in terms of like what you said about the head coach being responsible for the organization, the motivation, the discipline, and the player utilization. I can't see where the problems could come because if you're in those draft meetings like we've all been in and the player says, hey, if we take this player, we're going to use him exactly like this, and then you take him and he's not utilized like that, I could see that being an issue. Um, one of the things that... I wanted to touch on was even beneath the general manager role, you have like these young scouts and you have these guys that are um, maybe pro personnel directors or college personnel directors, and they are interviewing for the general manager thing, which requires really managing the entire operation. How do you take a guy from especially on one side, be it the pro side or the college side and envision him being a guy that can manage the entire operation? I'll just give you my philosophy, and, and, and there's always exceptions to quote the rule, and this isn't the rule, it's just a philosophy. Uh, first of all, I'd like a guy to have been brought up and be primarily in the college end of it. And, and here's why. Putting a draft board together is a very complex situation. It, it's not easy to do that, and it takes a little time to, to, to get it, so to speak. The other thing is college players come into the NFL. And what I found is this, Bucky is if you go back and read your reports on pro players, they're usually right on. Now, maybe you rated them wrong in the beginning, but you hit the skills right, you hit the character right, and maybe the guy developed a little bit more. You underrated him or overrated him. But it's, so basically, if I'm a college guy, and, and I've run a college department, number one, I've had to do the draft board, which is essential. Number two, okay, I know the players in the league pretty much because I know them in college. Now, I may not know exactly what they're doing right now, but guess what? It's not going to be far off what our college report said. Now, if I'm a pro guy, what I need to do is I need to every year do a couple things. One, by the end of that draft, I need to have looked at every player that's drafted in the first two rounds minimum. reason I say first two rounds is this. The first round has a 75% success rate based on a 10-year study I did to be a starter after four years. The second round, it's only 50%. If you know those two rounds, you'll know the majority of the good players in the league. And you especially have to know quarterbacks, no matter where they're drafted, uh, because uh, they can develop anyway, and you always need one. And when you go into a job, you're not going to have one, so you better know who the quarterbacks are in the league. So if I'm interviewing the college guy, tell me what you've done in the pro end. Because I want to see him be proactive in his other time to study pro players. 
What have you done to learn the contract negotiations and the salary cap? You should have some expertise in that area. It's not that complicated on the salary cap. It really isn't. Now, the pro guy, what are you doing in the offseason? Are you studying the college players? What, what are you doing in that point of view? Are you working on the cap? So I want, I'd like to see a guy be one, mainly college, but have had the uh, effort, okay, the vision, to at least experience the work in the pro scouting and something to do with the cap and the league rules. That's an ideal situation. Now, Bucky, how do you hire a head coach in that, okay? <laughs> I want a coaching list. And the sharp ones will have a coaching list and have it well thought out. But there's very few who have done that. Wow. There, there, so many different things. I completely agree with you about the college and pro thing. I've always felt like the guys that work in two separate departments, like when you're a college evaluator, it's apples or oranges because it's more projection. I think when you work on the pro side, it's more just trying to figure out, do they fit what we want to do and how we envision our team playing? Um it, it is a fascinating thing because the draft board and the process and, and all of those things, it does require a level of nuance that you might not have been exposed to if you're a pro guy. But since you mentioned the head coaching and the coaching list and how you would like to see everyone ha have one, let's talk about head coaches and how you hire head coaches and basically what are you looking for in a head coach? When a head coaching candidate sits across from you, what are some of the things that you're trying to determine? What qualities do you want to know if he has? Well, I'll tell you what, the only guy in the history of all pro sports that I know of that got it right was Dan Rooney. You know, we talk, we talk about in Cleveland and, and Freddie Kitchens, and we're not trying to pick on Kitchens, but it, it's the story of the day, so to speak. You know, John Dorsey recommended him, fought for him, believed in him, and it was basically a disaster, okay? And he wanted to keep him, which was, that's the second mistake, okay? <laughs> Don't make two mistakes, make one. Well, you know what? Anybody who's done this has made mistakes, okay? So it's not perfect, except one guy, Dan Rooney. So I interviewed Dan, and I says, tell me what you're looking for in a head coach. Uh, and so I'm going to give you, I've got, I'm going to give you five things here, uh, basically, and, and three are from Dan Rooney and two are from Joe Gibbs. All right, Dan Rooney, number one, a leader. Has to be able to command the room. Now, you could be Tony Dungy. Quiet voice, never swear. He holds people accountable. That's how you control the room, and you make sense in your message. Or you could be Parcells, okay, and, you, and you're going to fill up the room with your personality. But you have to have somebody who can command the room. Not offense, not defense. Forget that. Number two, communication. We mentioned that a couple times. you got to be able to communicate at multi-levels. you got to be able to communicate with the owner, communicate with all the players and all their different backgrounds that they come from, and all their different intelligence levels. you got to be able to communicate with that. Communicate with your staff. Communicate with the fans through the press. So a lot of levels of communication. Third one for him was character. Now, Bucky, we all can define character any way you want to do it. I'm going to just say, I'm going to keep it simple. Can I count on you? Count on you? There's a lot of things that are going to count on you, but can I count on you? Now, Joe Gibbs, two things, evaluation ability. You have to be able to evaluate players. You have to be able to evaluate them to put them into a system and adapt the system. When Joe Gibbs came to the Redskins, he came from San Diego, wide open offense, throwing the ball all over the field. Okay, spread formations, tight end in motion, et cetera, the H-back. He came in, he put it in. We, it didn't work in, with our personnel. So within the first five games, which he lost every one of them, changed to a one-back power offense because we had John Riggins. And we had to block Lawrence Taylor, so you better have a tight end on each side to block him, not just a tackle. So he adapted. Okay? But evaluation. Again, that's evaluating your personnel and changing them up. Got to evaluate coaches. Now, the, fa the, uh, the fifth one, is called he called it management. You got to be able to manage personalities, manage your coaches, manage the players. Bucky, you've been a head coach in high school, and <laughs> Change, it's, yeah. it's different, but it's not different. Okay, hey, you had to call guys in your office and sit them down. Joe Gibbs calls guys. You got problems every day. You got to solve them. So those are the five things: leadership, communication, character, evaluation, and management. Now, there's other things, but to me, that's where I'm going to start with the guys. You know, okay, so Charlie, like, you, you haven't had a lot of exposure to some of these candidates before they sit across from you. So how are you able to assess, assess those five characteristics during a 24 or 48-hour interview session? Like, how do you figure, how do you determine, like, okay, this is the right guy for what we want to get done? Well, it's, it's, it's not simple. That's the first thing. 
Uh, the, the number one thing is you start with your research. And what I always did, Bucky, and I do it today, I call all the teams that hired a head coach, tell me who you didn't hire, why didn't you hire them, and who did you really like? So we start with the, uh, the list from last year, so to speak. Uh, uh, for example, Kevin Stefanski was a name that seemed to be very close in Cleveland. So he's going to be on the list. Eric Biemini got some interviews, good mm-hmm. reviews. He's going to be on the list. Matt Rule, the head coach at Baylor. Number of interviews over the last two years. Everyone's been positive as far as the presentation, the leadership, et cetera. So you know, these are guys that you put on the list. Now, then you go, who are guys that did not coach last year? That had success. Well, Mike McCarthy, he has to be on your list. Now, we're talking on your list to research right now. We start mm-hmm. with research. So we might have 25 names on this probably when we get done with it, roughly. So we have him. Then I go to college. Who in college has pro experience and is a head coach that's successful? Well, Matt Rule. He was with the Giants for one year. Now, to me, and this is just a personal prejudice, I don't put guys who have been head coaches in college on the list unless they've had pro experience. The only guy that I can remember that was ever successful in this league that did not have pro experience was Jimmy Johnson. He was phenomenally Mm. successful. Had a lot Mm -hmm. of draft choices, but give him credit, he was successful. You take guys who've never been in the NFL, most of them have not been successful uh, in in the NFL if they hadn't been in there first. Bill O'Brien in the NFL goes to Penn State. He comes back, you know, he's been a success in Houston. Mm -hmm. So why? Now, here's why. They don't know the tree to get assistant coaches. Single most important thing you do as a head coach is hire your staff. Pick people. you got to have that tree. College coaches don't have that tree. It becomes difficult right there. That's one thing. The second thing is, all of a sudden, they're in a system. we got a draft. we got free agency. we got a salary cap. i got a general manager. i got an owner. A lot different structure than college, and, and adapting to that sometimes can be difficult. So we research them. Uh, then we look at who is uh, coming up this year as an assistant coach. Robert Sala from San Francisco really emerged. Let's study him and find out, does he have the characteristics? So we get our list of names. Then we have to research him, calling where he's interviewed, calling people you know. You're trying to get a book on him. All right. Now when they come in, presence and communication are two things you, can, you try to judge during the interview. And Bucky, hey, no one is an expert on this. Everyone tries to do the best they can. So presentation, you know, how does he communicate his message? Is he organized? Does he have a plan? Does the plan make sense? Uh, so those are the things you're looking for. But I'll tell you what the number one thing is, Bucky. And I said, if I ever do this again, the interviews are going to be five minutes or all day. Tell me who you want to hire as your staff. Right then, it's an eye-opener. And the reason I say that is when I ask teams why they don't hire somebody, they said the staff would have killed them. He had no idea who to hire. The mm. names are horrible. So as a general manager, you got to know the assistants in the league. And you got to know all of the assistants in the league. Now, now the staffs are much bigger now. So they got 25 people, and we used to have 12. I don't have to know all the guys who are the quality, but I got to know those position coaches and coordinators because those are guys that he might come with and want to talk about bringing in. So... The staff is a huge part of the interview to me. Wow, that's that's a lot, Charlie. That's ex- I mean, that's a significant amount of research that everybody has to do, like in the week, I would say in the weeks or the months to come. Like, I don't think you can, like based on what you're talking about, I don't think firing your coach can be a very emotional decision. It can't be, hey, we lost week 17, we fire him on Monday, now we start the process. It appears that it needs to be something that is, is is thought out and kind of planned for months in advance. Is that true, or or do people mess it up by making these emotional decisions and then they're behind the eight ball? Well, a little bit of everything. As far as the planning part of it, you always have to have a list. You never know when the owner is going to walk down the hall and says, hey, tell me the guys out there that we should look at for a new head coach. Because oh, wow. it okay. could be an emotional point during the season. So you got to be ready for that, and you learn that. Okay, I learned that. You got to learn it because your head coach might retire and not unexpectedly, like Joe Gibbs did uh, in, in uh, March of 1993. You got to be ready. So you, you learn to be ready with that part of it. So you start it after the hiring cycle right now. So, like in February at the combine, I'll be grabbing guys. Hey, tell me how so and so interviewed. Tell me about your list. So by March, I've got the old list set up. And I know who's not coaching that year who I think is a good coach, like a Bruce Arians sat out of here. So Bruce is going to be on this list. I'm not doing much with it, 
but I've got it researched based on the current information. So I'm ready as I go through the season, the owner comes in, I got something there ready for him. It's not going to be complete, but it's going to be a starting point. Um, so that, that's the thing there. And obviously, you may not be changing head coaches, but the head coach could retire. That's the one that mm-hmm. got me, see, at that point. But it was after March, you were limited on who you could hire anyway at that point in time. So now on the uh, uh, making the emotional decisions, the owner makes all the decisions, okay? The general manager doesn't. The general manager can have significant input, though, because the owner is going to listen to him in most cases. So, again, you have to try to be balanced in it, and, and again, it can come down to the last two games of the season sometimes. It shouldn't, but sometimes it does happen that way. You know, Charlie, this has been um, terrific in terms of, like, just kind of getting a better understanding because, you know, sometimes on the outside looking in, when I hear the names that are, are thrown out for, like, the hot coaching candidates, it always appears to be a coordinator, uh, whether it's a defense coordinator or an offense coordinator. It's skewed a little more towards offense of late, but it appears that, Everything that you've asked and everything that we've talked about, not at one point in a 15 or 20 minute conversation have we talked about scheme and, and, and how you play. And so is that part of it a little overrated on the outside, like in the media world? I know we're in the media world now, but I would like to think that we're a little different. Do, does the media right. take the schematics and the tactical part and make it too much of a deal when they're talking about coaching candidates and guys who are worthy of being head coaches? I'm not sure they do, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it was one thing I forgot to mention with Rooney. He, the three guys he hired, I guess in 50 years, all won Super Bowls. None of them were a head coach. They were all in their 30s, and they all were the defensive coordinator, not mm. offensive coordinator. He made a comment to one person. He said, you know what? I like hiring defensive guys. They manage the game better. I thought that was an interesting comment that he made there. Uh, no, it's leadership. It's leadership. Can you lead? you can't lead, it don't make any difference whether you can call plays. Now, what happens, though, Bucky, in reality, when teams hire, they're usually reactive. They're not mm-hmm. leadership first. What do we got to fix? New York Jets, we got to get our quarterback better, okay? We're going to hire a quarterback guy, Adam Gase. So that, that's what they – oh, we want somebody with some head coach. Oh, that's it. Never talked about, you know, is this guy a leader? I'm not saying he is or he isn't. But you have that too many times. We want to hire an offensive guy. We've got to hire a guy who's a disciplinary. Okay, good. Does he know football? Okay, can he hire a coaching staff? So I think what happens is teams focus on that. I think the media goes maybe too far with it sometimes, but I don't think it's an inaccurate statement to say many times, hey, they're going to go get an offensive guy. Carolina, I hear the story. They want an offensive guy. Well, that's not what it would be if they were asking me. <laughs> uh, that's, that's funny. It's great. I, I do want to tap into it because you did work with one of the best coaches in NFL history in Joe Gibbs. Um, just quickly, what did you learn from watching him coach the team that you believe that if you were sitting in the room hiring a potential head coach or you could advise a potential head coach, what nuggets would you take from your experience with Gibbs to pass on to an aspiring head coach? Well, I kind of alluded to earlier, but the number one thing, and Joe Gibbs said, the number one thing you do is, is hire people. That's the single most important thing you do. Now, Joe Gibbs not only won three Super Bowls, but he went to NASCAR and won four or five championships there mm. and is in the Hall of Fame. What's the, what's the uh, common thing? Hiring people. So that's the number one thing. Can this guy pick people, pick players and pick coaches? That's number one. Number two, I think with Joe was his ability to, to give you a clear vision on what you're looking for. Bucky, as you know, as, as a scout, hey, this is the kind of player at each position we're looking for. Gibbs was the clearest guy I ever worked for, so there was a vision on offense and defense of every position and what he wanted and what the defensive coaches wanted because he didn't spend much time with the defense. He let them pretty much run it. He got involved if things weren't going good, but other than that, uh, he let them run it. So vision of what you're looking for. Quarterback, I'll just give you one. He wanted a guy with a big arm. Now, the guy's got to be smart and tough, and he better be smart and he better be tough, okay? But a big arm, weak arm guy, he, won't get, he didn't want to deal him because that wasn't, he, that wasn't in his offense. See, you got that. Now, the other thing is ability to adapt slash solve problems. I gave you the adaption one. He comes in, he's running the spread offense in, uh, uh, back in the, uh, the 80s, early 80s at that point, what we call the spread, uh, three wides and the uh, one back tight end. It didn't work. 
all of a sudden with two tight ends, power running team, because that worked with the team. See, he adapted. Okay. Now, he still wanted to throw the ball deep. He just had to do it in a little different way. Um, the other thing was, I'll give you a story here. Uh, the run and shoot came into the league. This is about 1990 when we faced it. And we, we couldn't stop the thing. He must have given up 40 points or something like that. And, and the team come out and play spread against this bookie, Bucky. We gave up 30 points. We couldn't stop anybody. What Joe Gibbs did in the offseason is he brought in uh, R.C. Slocum, who was the coach of Texas A&M, had a defense to run and shoot in college. Then he brought in another coach to say, here's how we teach it. All right, so he brought in the guy to teach it and the guy to defend it. And from that, our defensive coaches got a plan. The next year, we played seven teams that ran spread or run and shoot, held them to 12 points a game, won wow. the Super Bowl. So what's he doing? Okay, it's, he's adapting. He's adapting to the game when it changes. He's adapting to the players he has. So the ability to adapt was great with Gibbs uh, and uh, picking people. Those were the two things. And, and, and setting a vision. Those were three things that stuck out to me. Uh, tremendous coach. It's a tremendous coach. I remember, obviously, as, as, as a kid, having uh, close ties to the D.C. area. The Redskins were always a favorite in watching it. Charlie, I can't thank you enough for this uh, graduate school-level education on picking a GM <laughs> and a head coach. Uh, thanks so much for sharing. Thanks for joining the Move to Six podcast. I look forward to bringing you back on to talk about college players and everything that we can discuss when it comes to the evaluation process in the 2020 draft. All right, Bucky. Hey, it's always a pleasure. Good to be with you now. Hey, thanks so much, Charlie. There you have it. Anytime uh, you're able to get that kind of knowledge from someone who really knows, it certainly helps you as you begin to look at the process. I think the biggest takeaways for me after talking to Charlie about that is, man, so much of what you're doing when you're hiring has little to do with the X's and O's and more about the person, the leadership ability, the character, the adaptability, being able to problem solve, having great communication skills. Regardless of whether you're hiring a general manager or head coach, you need to make sure that these people have the essential traits needed to succeed. If you don't do that, you're going to mess it up. So now let's, let's, let's pause for a minute. Let's think about the games this weekend. We have the NFC wildcard weekend. We have exciting games. We have a ton of quarterbacks that we want to see. Let's bring in Charles Davis to preview the NFC action. Well, man, it's always a good time when I get to bring in my good friend, maybe one of my mentors in the business, <laughs> Charles Davis, analyst for NFL Network, Fox, guy who knows everything about everything in the world, including football. CD, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, Bucky. Happy holidays to Man. you and yours. And can't believe we've turned the page and here we are, 2020. Unbelievable. Man, it is unbelievable that we are in 2020. But look, this is the best part of the football season. We're now in the postseason, the playoffs. And I know yes. you have been up on it. You're seeing all these scenes. First, before I ask you about the NFC, um, what are your thoughts going into the playoffs about just the best teams in general? Oh, man. Well, I'll start, you know, on the AFC side because New England's always going to roll off your tongue first. But it feels to me like this is the most vulnerable they've ever been in this run. And the reason I say that is they were playing at a historic level on defense, but they never played at a historic level or even close to that on offense all year. And then when the defense, you know, had as much as they could take and they're still hanging in there, it's tough for them. I mean, you know, Miami comes in and gets you in your own place when you have something to play for. I think alarm bells should be ringing, and they're going to play on wildcard weekend for the first time since 2009, yet they're still the New England Patriots. So they'll get our full respect. But I think if I were a team now, I would go in with as much confidence as possible. I do think that on that side, dealing with Baltimore, dealing with Lamar Jackson is going to be difficult. But the team I fear the most as the playoffs begin are the Kansas City Chiefs. Oh, because they started to play yeah. defense down the stretch. Steve Spagnuolo, you know, what was that great quote that um, Denzel Washington had in Remember the Titans <laughs> when he handed the defensive coach's playbook and the guy said, uh, the other assistant said, boy, it's awfully thin playbook. He said, hey, we don't do a whole lot, split veer, but it's like Novocaine. It may take some time, but it works every time. 
<laughs> I mean, that look, that, it, it is so true. That, that the AFC is is really compelling. Uh, Kansas City and Baltimore, the way that they play, you have really good teams and the Buffalo Bills that are kind of solid all the way around. The Tennessee Titans have discovered themselves with Derrick Henry yes. and Ryan Tannehill uh, playing solid ball under Mike Vrabel. There are a lot of good teams. When you look at the, a, the NFC, at the top, you have the San Francisco 49ers, the Green Bay Packers, the New Orleans Saints. Uh, what do you think about those teams at the top before we talk about the wild cards? Well, I think San Francisco getting that open week is huge for them because they were really, really tired going down the stretch, but they found a way. And just think in a matter of, what, three weeks, mm-hmm. they lost a game on a play at the goal line with Julio Jones because of his physical presence. He found the tip of the football over the goal line. And then the same play happens late, but it's Jacob Hollister who has the ball in the, and I'm not going to say wrong arm, let's say the opposite arm, right? Mm-hmm. Great tackle by Drake Greenlaw. But if that ball's in the other arm, yeah, it's on the t- goal line. It's a touchdown. It's a touchdown. So that's how close it was for San Francisco. I thought they got tired at the end of the year, but they fought through it and got what done what they needed to get done. That was huge for them to not have to go on the road and make a cross-country trip to Philadelphia. New Orleans, I think, is the most complete team overall because of Drew Brees. But here's the thing. Drew Brees in a dome is a lot different than Drew Brees at Lambeau Field mm. or Drew Brees in bad weather in San Francisco. So that's the key for everything. San Francisco getting that home field is huge. And Green Bay, they just sit back and go, you know something? You don't respect us. We may be an ugly 13-3, and three, but we're 13-3. and three. I just think, Bucky, that during the playoffs, at some point, Aaron Rodgers has to be the Aaron Rodgers we knew from the past. Yeah, and, and that's what it's going to do. There's going to be one game in there somewhere where he'll have to do that. And someone besides Devontae Adams got to step up big for Green Bay. Yeah, those look the two top teams, uh, the San Francisco 49ers, their ability to run the football and the run the football at, uh, against everybody certainly enables Jimmy Garoppolo to kind of ease into the game. And then let's 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 be frank. Jimmy Garoppolo has been terrific when they've needed him to be. Kyle Shanahan, yes. I think, does a better job of any other coordinator outside of uh, Sean Payton in terms of creating home run opportunities for his quarterback. Yes. The game is so easy when I look at San Francisco for Jimmy Garoppolo. So you worry about them uh, just because their offensive efficiency is so good but defensively they've kind of come back to the pack and then with the Green Bay Packers I think the thing that is hard sometimes to kind of wrap your mind around with the Green Bay Packers you're so used to seeing this team kind of enter the ring like Deontay <laughs> Wilder like knocking yeah. people out with haymakers but they've kind of morphed into Floyd Mayweather Jr. being a <laughs> counterpuncher where they're leaning on the running game and the defense and other yeah. aspects of the team outside of Aaron Rodgers, you just wonder which fighter is going to show up in the playoffs. Um, because, look, they certainly can go the distance, but they also could be a one-and-done team just as easy. That is so true. And, and their ability to play defense, I think, has been the story of their season. And remember, for all those years, you know, they didn't pick up free agents, right? Mm-hmm. Not not high-ticket free agents. They went and got the Smith brothers, right? Yeah. And that has made all the difference in the world. No other duo going into the last week in the season had 12 or more sacks out of each person in the duo. Green Bay had that. Preston Smith had a career year. So did Zadarius Smith. And Zadarius Smith is going to get votes for NFL Defensive Player of the Year or NFC Defensive Player of the Year. And he didn't get voted into the Pro Bowl. So, okay, But he had so three and a half sacks against Minnesota two weeks ago, 13 and a half on the year. And then he chased the heck out of David Blau, the rookie quarterback for Detroit, on su- on Sunday and created more plays. This guy's had a monster year. And Green Bay, unless someone can be dedicated to the run and mm-hmm. beat them up and beat them out of their five and six defensive backs look on every down, until they can do that, those hybrids will run around and, and hold you down. Look, Bucky, the last five games of the season, the most points they gave up were to Detroit on Sunday. Prior mm-hmm. to that, they hadn't given up 15 or more in a game in four straight. No, they, they were they were playing terrific heading down the stretch. This bye week will certainly help them. And you're right. As long as you have number 12, the beauty in having a franchise <laughs> quarterback to that level, you don't need him to be great all the time. You just need him right. to be great some of the time. And if one of those instances happens in the playoffs, they're going to advance because we've seen the magic. And, and, and thinking about magic, um, quarterbacks, Drew Brees, all-time leader, all the things that he's been able to accomplish this year. He goes into the postseason kind of having an opportunity to exercise some demons against the Minnesota Vikings. What do you see when you see this matchup? Well, I think that Minnesota, we know how good they've been on defense under Mike Zimmer. 
I feel like their window's closing on that side of the ball. And they've got to get it done and get it done now. Because when I watched them play, and I had a chance, a couple of opportunities, they blew out Philadelphia at home um, in, in a game where Stephon Diggs went off. And everybody went off because the Philly corners just weren't up to snuff. Sidney Jones, Rasul Douglas struggled like crazy that day. And I also saw them at Kansas City in a really good game. But, you know, that, that, that defense that we were used to with Mike Zimmer, we're on third down. Zim got exotic and strangled you, and mm-hmm. you were getting maybe 30% of those. That number's up. And that's not normal for Minnesota. So that's one thing that's a danger zone for me. We can go into the Kirk Cousins thing all day long. I feel bad for him. But the numbers are the numbers are the numbers. Primetime, big-time games, the numbers just aren't good for him. Mm-hmm. Plus, you've got Dalvin Cook beat up, Alexander Madison beat up. They're both supposed to be back. But will they be 100%? That New Orleans defense, I know it was a shootout with New Orleans and San Francisco. But all in all, I like them. The trouble they're going to have now is can that defensive front absorb a strong run game because Rankins is hurt, right, up front? I mean, they've got a couple of guys missing in that interior that they were counting on. But I do think that at home, Drew Brees with Michael Thomas and crew, it's hard for me to think that New Orleans won't advance out of that grouping. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a tough matchup when, when you look at it for the Minnesota Vikings because it all depends on Dalvin Cook. They are a completely different offense when Dalvin Cook is available yes. when he's on the sideline. When he's available, man, that zone stretch game, oh. the bootleg and the, and the, and the passing Ooh. that they have with the complimentary threats and Adam Thielen and Stephon Diggs yes. and Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith Jr., they can really do damage, but he has to be available to slow this down. And I think this is one of the games where if you're looking from a tactical standpoint, it has to be the Minnesota Vikings using their offense to play defense. That means slowing the game down, draining the clock on offense, kind of playing keep away. I'll call it Wisconsin basketball. They got to play <laughs> Wisconsin or UVA basketball, uh, kind of hold and retain possession and see if they can frustrate the Saints by not giving them their normal possessions, meaning – Drew Brees is on the sideline for a long time, and maybe he feels like he has to rush some things. But this is a game where it's an uphill battle for the Minnesota Vikings. I think it would take a great defensive effort and some turnovers for them to win. But I kind of think you're right. The the New Orleans Saints are too balanced and too deep on both sides of the ball to kind of fall short in this one. I love the breakdown, Bucky, and I'm, I'm with you on all of it. The one thing I'm going to add, and I don't know what you think about it, if I'm Minnesota and I get into a situation where you're feeling like you're matching up pretty well in this game. I'm going to make Drew Brees beat me deep oh, yeah. and not in front of me. Okay. I'm making him throw it over my head mm-hmm. and I'm telling my safeties, I need you to be involved downfield because I want to see him stretch it out. You know, I want to see him stretch and stretch that arm a little bit and see what we have. You go back to the playoff game last year. You remember how they blew out Philadelphia midseason last season? Yeah. And they had that beat up secondary. Mm-hmm. Well, essentially the same secondary showed up about six weeks later in the divisional playoffs. And the first play of the game, Drew challenged them downfield, had an open receiver and was short. And Cravon LeBlanc picked off the pass. Mm-hmm. I would I would fight. I would make him beat me that way as opposed to him doing what he normally does with his incredible dart-throwing self. Yep. Because think about this. Isn't it the last three years in a row he's broken his own completion percentage record in the NFL? Yes. That's just off the charts. I mean, to continue to be that good and that precise, I'd sit on those short routes and say, throw it over my head and let's see what happens. You know, Charles, it's one of those things that I wonder sometimes in watching games, like why people don't challenge their receivers. Because when you really look at their team, not only with Drew Brees and his arm strength kind of waning and diminishing, I don't see a, a burner out there. Look, Michael Thomas is a bully. He he wears people out. He will beat but, you up. But I, I think it has to be a situation where, man, you, you choke those guys on the outside. You double-team Michael Thomas, and maybe Alvin Kamara catches 10 or 11 passes. Maybe that's what you're scared of. Your linebacker can't match it with him. But at some point, you got to make Traquan Smith and and, yep. and, and and Tig and Junior and those other guys make plays. I do believe you're on to something. We will see if the Minnesota Vikings do that. I want to go to the other game, though. Seattle Seahawks, the Philadelphia Eagles. The Philadelphia Eagles come. I, I, I have no idea if I was calling the game, <laughs> I would need a, a big roster chart with all these new <laughs> names highlighted because I don't know how they made their way in, but they're in it, yes. and they're taking on the Seattle Seahawks. Break this game down. Oh boy, you are so you are so on top of that because when I watched Sunday after our game ended in Detroit, we stayed over to watch it. 
And I don't know how many times across the table someone said, who's number 16? <laughs> who's number 18? Who's number whatever? Because – and we've had Philadelphia this year. So we all pulled up rosters, you know? I said, oh, that's Deontay Burnett from USC. Okay, now I've got it. Didn't realize he was playing this week. Arthur J.J. Ortega-Whiteside has been playing but not very much. Greg Ward was signed off the practice squad the last time we saw it when he first made his appearance against Seattle this year at mm-hmm. home. That was the first time they pulled him up off the practice squad. We knew about Dallas Goddard, but we didn't expect Zach Ertz to be gone. But think of it this way, and you pointed out so well. Carson Wentz, think of all the criticism he has mm-hmm. caught. Think about all the rumblings within his own locker room. And some people have said it's come from his receiving core. Mm-hmm. Alshon Jeffrey's not playing. Deshaun Jackson's not playing. Nelson Aguilar's not playing. And Carson Wentz is playing the best football of the last three years for him. I don't know if there's something to that or not, Bucky, but it seems like he is playing free. He is playing loose. And you almost feel like he's going to walk into the locker room on Monday and go, well, for all you guys who are hurt and been criticizing me, I don't know what to tell you. These guys are getting it done. I don't know what else to tell you. And it is a crazy scenario, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Because what team would think that you'd be so-called better? And I don't know if better is the right word, but they're good enough right now. Now, are they matched up well with Seattle? The answer is no. But here's a couple of factors I look into and tell me what you think. Seattle just had a flat out, and I know this is the wrong word to use because war is real, but let's keep it in football terms of war. That was a football war Mm. on Sunday night with San Francisco. Yeah. Now you've got to go cross country. Now, Seattle does a great job of traveling cross country. Their record is impeccable under Pete Carroll. But still, you're going cross country and playing a team that everyone expects you to handle. They are in the position now flipped of what they were the year they went 7-9, and nine, won their division, and beat New Orleans at home in a playoff game that gave us Beast Mode and Beast Quake. Remember that one? Yes. They are now the New Orleans Saints in this situation. And here's Philadelphia playing with house money. To me, it's a very dangerous game for Seattle. They should win it, but I'm not going to go out and say that they flat out will. It wouldn't shock me at all because the upsets always happen. This is a prime one for Philadelphia, but I will say this. That roster – it's unbelievable that they even made the playoffs with it. Hey, look, unbelievable. And I'm going to give credit to Doug Peterson. I think this is one of the best no coaching doubt. jobs that I've seen in terms of, look, man, they didn't have much available to him. He was able to figure it out. And in game, he has been able to adjust with guys falling like flies. I think that's a credit to him and his coaching staff for being able to. Can you to, say Boston Scott? I mean, uh, I mean, really unbelievable, like, who they've been able to play with, the screen game and working inside <laughs> out. But, you know, back to your point about Carson Wentz, because – I. I Look, I'll go and reckon and say that maybe, look, I liked him as a prospect, but then mm-hmm. I felt like it went too far to the left where they were saying, hey, MVP and he's this and he's that. And I believe the last four weeks we have seen what the epitome of a franchise quarterback is supposed to be. A franchise quarterback yes. is supposed to elevate those around him. And the fact that he played with a bag of uh, 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 misfits and miscast, <laughs> and miscast and cast-offs and whatever you want to say for these guys that were off practice squads or off the street, and he's been able to win with them, I think it not only changes the standing uh, for him on the national level. I think in the locker room, he has clearly seized the team. And those guys yeah. that were talking, maybe the Alshon Jeffries, the Nelson Aguilars, I, can, I think it's very easy for the Eagles to move on from them and to continue to empower their franchise quarterback because he's earned it. Yeah, and it's a perfect year, isn't it, Bucky? Because you cover this stuff all year long. Is everything I understand is that mm. this is a great year to go get receivers oh, great, in man. the draft. Like, it's oh, flat man. out loaded. So you're exactly right. This is your year you make that move. Now, remember, they can play small ball, as you pointed out. They played it with, with, with Ertz and Goddard. Last week, Ertz doesn't play. Goddard is your main tight end. Who was the guy who came in and caught a touchdown pass? Who was that third tight end? Sure, I, I'm I, sitting there going, who the heck even, is that? I don't even, I don't even know, but and, he comes and he, right and, in and, and scores. And he caught one. <laughs> he does scores. Yes, does, right? right away. Now, now, we know who he is. I can't call his name to save my life right now, and I feel bad about that. He's been in the league, but he comes off the practice squad or gets promoted, and, and he scores. Jordan, Rod, Jordan Howard is supposed to play. He doesn't go. Mm-hmm. Miles Sanders starts, gets dinged. Boston Scott. Yes. All right. 
anyone from not from that school name where Boston Scott went? I think it was New Mexico. Was it New Mexico State? Was it uh, was think it UT La, San La, Antonio? Was La Tech? I think yeah. it was La Tech. You're right. La Tech is where he went to school. So you put it all together and what they did, Doug Peterson keeping the locker room together, the defensive guys hanging in there and not pointing fingers at the offense and, and doing their jobs, the offensive line going through. And look, they lost Brandon Brooks again. They're all pro their pro bowl right guard. He goes out in this ball game. Phenomenal effort. Do they have enough to get off the deck again this week and do it? I say they play loose and free again. Seattle, I think, has more pressure on them coming from the west side and really thinking they should be a one or a two seed. Look, man, it's it's terrific set of games. I mean, you talk about the NFC games, the AFC games. I'm excited to see the playoffs. But more importantly, I'm excited to have more conversation with you during the run-up to the draft. CD, thanks so much for coming on Move the Sticks. Hey, thanks for having me. And you guys take care. Happy holidays to everyone and happy, uh, you know, you know, happy new year to everyone. Now that we're in 2020, I still can't believe that. And thanks again for having me on. You guys are the best. Hey, appreciate it, CD. Thank you. So obviously everyone is excited. Wildcard weekend, fascinating matchups. The Seattle Seahawks and the Philadelphia Eagles seeing two franchise quarterbacks duke it out. We'll see, man, if Carson Wentz can continue to be the magician. He has pulled rabbits out of hats the last four or five weeks we'll see if he can keep it going and then on the other side you just want to see can Kirk Cousins get over the hump Drew Brees is playing at a phenomenal level the connection he has with Michael Thomas and then Alvin Kamar pitching in it's going to be a tough one but it is an exciting game or exciting set of games to watch and speaking of exciting games Nabil jump in I know as a Wisconsin fan you had your eyes fixed to the TV or did you go to the game did you go to the Rose Bowl no, no, I was going to go, but, you know, I, I was able to get a better view, you know, watching <laughs> the quarterbacks from home. You, did, you, just watched, you just watched it from the house, so you had to do the emotional roller coaster of watching Oregon beat Wisconsin 28-27, a game that was really an outstanding game, a game where um, I would say this, I, I felt like Wisconsin uh, might have been the better team, Wisconsin didn't play as well, and Oregon showed uh, some toughness and some grit that I don't know if any of us saw that they had. And I think the game really comes down to the quarterback, Justin Herbert, and not in the way that many of us thought that it would come down. Justin Herbert was only 14 for 20, 138 yards. He had an interception. But, man, he had three rushing TDs. He had nine carries for 29 rushing yards. And his 30-yard touchdown in the fourth quarter gave the Ducks the lead. Um, When I look at that performance, I actually think this performance will help him when it comes to the evaluation process. And it's going to help him in this fact. Ultimately, when you're picking a quarterback, you want to feel his presence in big games. And coming off the heels of the Pac-12 title game, where you felt him kind of use more of his athleticism to complement his arm talent, I felt like he inserted himself into this game as an athlete. The three rushing touchdowns, the ability to pull the ball on the zone read, getting to the perimeter, he really energized an Oregon offense that really was stifled by the Wisconsin defense. And I think when evaluators look at his performance, I think they're going to come away saying, I like the toughness. I like the grit. I like the presence in terms of how I felt his impact on the game and how I felt like he was really there for his teammates. And I love the fact that I can envision him doing more than maybe we could imagine him doing previously. I think this is a a game where offensive coordinators and head coaches will take a closer look at Justin Herbert and they will begin to envision what creative things they could do for him. Nabil, now you're on the other side of it. What was your take on Justin Herbert? Well, you know, I thought he was very accurate. He was athletic. You know, he showed off his athleticism, which he hasn't done throughout the year as much. Like you said, he displayed that he can make the plays in the big moments. One thing I do worry about Justin Herbert at the next level that I would like to ask you is, You know, he had a lot of short throws. Do you think he he has a big arm, but he didn't show it yesterday? Do you think he could read through his progressions enough at the next level? You know, I think that's the thing. I think that's the thing that everyone will question about Justin Herbert. Uh, Is he more than just a one or two read quarterback uh, before he takes off? Like in that system, we hadn't seen him do a lot of what they call pure progression reads, where he may work the system from left to right based on how the route and the coverage dictates him to find the open man. But what I will say is this. We're seeing more teams 
utilize the stretch bootleg system that has been popularized by uh, the San Francisco 49ers, the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, we can call it the Mike Shanahan, Gary Kubiak, Kyle Shanahan system. But however you want to dub it, it is a system where if your quarterback is athletic enough to get on the perimeter, you can do some very, very creative things. And it makes it very, very easy to build up the completion percentage and to create big play opportunities for the quarterback. When I look at Justin Herbert, to me, he is a perfect fit in that system. When I look at Herbert, I think I can liken him a little bit to what Drew Locke was able to do for the Denver Broncos. Drew Locke being a terrific athlete, a basketball player, a legitimate basketball prospect in high school, um, a guy who was a little all over the place during his time in Missouri, where he joins and gets his opportunity with the Denver Broncos. They go 4-1 and one down the stretch, and he looks like a difference maker. I would say that if someone takes that same blueprint and uses it with Justin Herbert, I think Justin Herbert could be a high-end quarterback. He has big-time arm talent. He is smart as a whip. He has shown that he is tough. And then you add in the running skills. I believe that he certainly could play in one of those systems that we've seen Jimmy Garoppolo and Kirk Cousins excel in. And with Ryan Tannehill also having success in a similar kind of system, I think there's certainly a path to build an offense that enables Justin Herbert to play like a franchise quarterback. Now, what do you think about Jonathan Taylor? Because he has uh, two straight seasons with 2,000 rushing yards. You know, he was on display yesterday. What do you think about him? You know, like, look, this, this is a guy, and I, I think the thing with Wisconsin running backs, they kind of get the label of being system guys because there have been so many running backs that have gone through the system and had success at the collegiate level. And then it's been a, a mixed bag when they get to the pros. When I look at Jonathan Taylor, what I like, I like the vision. I like the balance. Uh, I like the physicality and toughness. I like the fact that he's shown this year more than other years that he can catch the ball out the backfield, appears to have really, really soft hands. And so to me, I just believe he is the consummate pro. I don't know if he's going to dazzle or wow you, but in the right situation, man, this guy is going to have a ton of production as um, a guy that kind of plays behind his pass, plays in a power-based offense. He has only, to me, enhanced and increased his stock. I think he's one of the top three running backs in the draft class if we include DeAndre Swift. We know J.K. Dobbins is coming out, Jen Jonathan Taylor. I think it ultimately comes down to what style running back do I envision being my RB1. But look, man, this is a guy who definitely has first-round talent to me. I think he has been very, very impressive with the durability, the production, the reliability in terms of being able to show up each and every week. He just continued to kind of solidify his status as a top running back for me. Now let's go over to the other game, the Sugar Bowl. You know, Georgia took on Baylor. It was everyone's eyes were on Matt Rule. What do you think about that game? You know, it, it was an interesting game, right, because all eyes were on Matt Rule. And I think for some people, this is the first exposure that maybe they've had to Baylor football. And when you hear Matt Rule and Matt Rule, the interest in Matt Rule, uh, the New York Giants and maybe the Dallas Cowboys, you kind of wanted to see what – the Baylor Bears have done to create this conversation. Well, what stood out to me is Baylor was overmatched by Georgia, but Baylor was very competitive. I like the physicality. I like the effort. I like the energy that they played with. And the fact that he took a team that was 1-11 and and won 11 games in a three-year span, that's pretty impressive to me, like what he's been able to do during his tenure. We'll see if he elects to make the move. He has a nice setup in Baylor, and they've really been hitting it hard on the recruiting trail. We'll see if he stays. From a player standpoint, all eyes were on the quarterback, Jake Fromm. Uh, Jake Fromm has kind of been mentioned as a guy that could be maybe a borderline first, second-round quarterback. Uh, when I see him play, to me, Jake Fromm is kind of a connect-the-dots quarterback, meaning he's a guy that doesn't necessarily wow you with his arm talent, but what he does is he plays the game the right way. He finds the open receiver. He allows his playmakers to do uh, their work, and he just kind of manages the offense. And I know sometimes when we talk about game managers, it's frowned upon, but I believe if Jake Fromm lands at a good team, I think he can keep the ship afloat. I don't know if Jake Fromm is what I would call a franchise saver. I think he's more of a managerial player at the position that can win, but it takes everything around him to be right. Don't know if he necessarily upgrades the talent, but I think he can keep it status quo or a little better. So if we talk about uh, truck or, or trailer parlance, 
I would say that he is a trailer. He is a guy that needs the team to pull him along. Uh, maybe he can grow to be in a truck where he can pull the team. But right now, I envision him as a guy that is uh, a game manager that needs to go to a good team to really have tremendous amount of success as a starting quarterback. So you think he'll be able to take that next step or he'll be more of a game manager type quarterback at the next level? Uh, I think he's more of a game manager type. I think if you look at, um, I guess the best comparison, I would say if you look at like a Kirk Cousins, uh, Kirk Cousins is what I would call a high end game manager. Uh, When you have to put too much on Kirk Cousins, it tends to go awry. But if the game can be under control and he's playing in a system where he's able to complement a running game and he has playmakers on the outside and they're able to use play action and some of the deception to create opportunities, he can thrive in that. I see Jake Fromm in much the same way. I think he is a guy that will need high-end pass catchers. He'll need a solid and consistent running game to be able to have success. I don't think that you could drop in a Jake Fromm in a talent-deficient situation and think that he, on the strength of his game alone, is going to reverse the fortunes. I think he's part of a bigger puzzle. He's a a small piece in the big puzzle as opposed to being a big puzzle piece that you kind of fit everything around. So, Bucky, what do you think about Jerry Judy? Alabama beat Michigan 35-16 yesterday. Jerry Judy had 204 receiving yards, a touchdown. What's your take on him? Look, man, I think it was a nice reminder for everyone who has kind of dismissed his chances of being the number one receiver off the board. I think it's very, very easy in this time to kind of fall in love with the explosive athlete, the guy that delivers maybe the splashy plays, and you kind of overlook the guy that is the skilled craftsman that understands how to run routes and consistently get open. I think Jerry Judy is a much better player than people will give him credit for during his draft process. I expect people to overlook him, and they're going to talk about some of the other guys, the C.D. Lambs and the T. Higgins and some of the explosive athletes. But I'm saying the best and most pro-ready wide receiver in this draft class will be Jerry Judy if he elects to come out. There's no one, no one in this draft class that is as refined a route runner as Judy. And we've seen year after year after year the guys that make the biggest impact in the National Football League early in their careers are the ones who understand how to run routes, the ones who can create consistent separation, and the ones who have the skills to be true number ones. He is a true number one receiver. He is a lead playmaker in a passing offense. I expect he's going to be a fantastic pro player. All right, well, look, there, there you have it, man. A fantastic podcast. We had Charlie Cassidy on to talk about hiring a general manager and coach. CD, Charles Davis, joined me to talk about the NFC wildcard matchups. And then me and Nabil had a little conversation. We had a little conversation. Nabil had a chance to be a co-star. Nabil came on and we talked about the bowl games and the players that we stopped, the players that we watched. And so, look, fantastic. Next week, we'll have my man DJ back in the lead. Uh, so it should be fun. So make sure to continue to download the Mood Sick podcast at Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Check out all of our videos on NFL.com slash MTS video or at our new YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash NFL podcast. Thanks for listening to Mood the Sticks. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.